Welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel's joining me as always. Eric, how are you doing? Amped up this morning. Amped, Amped. up. Amped, Amped. up. Amped. Yeah. It's, it's football is like. Did you drink a Mountain Dew amped energy drink? I did not. I'm drinking a green tea, which is about as much caffeine as I do, (laughs) truth be told. But I'm just amped up because football, I can smell football. It is so close. We are days away. Whenever you're listening to this, we might be even, we're probably even closer. But we're going to start actually getting to see a lot of these players out on the practice turf for the first time in a really long time. So I am, I'm amped up. I'm excited. I think it's going to be a really fun fall, especially considering as we'll get to in this podcast, how good this Oregon team could be this year. Yes, exactly. Football is here, basically, for at least us. Uh, if you count practice, then, yeah, football is officially here. Uh, Arizona, I believe, in the Pac-12 is almost a week into fall camp uh, because they start a week earlier than everybody else. But uh, football camp is here, and that's what the topic of this podcast is going to be, going into Oregon football camp. But before we do that... Uh, I want to encourage you, if you are not a subscriber to DuckTerritory.com, that you give us a try. You can do it for as low as $1 for your first 30 days on the site of a VIP membership. $1 gets you in the door. Uh, and if you're ready to, to save some serious coin, if you're already a subscriber, or if you know that, you know what, I, I'm hooked, I'm ready to go, I want to sign up for the first time, and uh, I want to go long term, not month to month, you can sign up for an annual subscription that comes out at $6.26 a month. That's one trip to, to Starbucks, uh, a bagel shop, uh, one less than probably uh, what it would cost to go out and buy lunch for your workday. So uh, I highly encourage you guys to give us a shot. I don't think you'll be disappointed in that if trial run that you, you give us. Uh, and, and on top of that, football is here, uh, and there's going to be a lot going on on DuckTerritory.com. Uh, Eric, we're going to talk Oregon football because on Friday, you know, depending on when you listen to this, um, Friday afternoon, early, you know, late morning, uh, Oregon is going to be hosting their annual Oregon football media day. So we've had Pac-12 media day. Uh, we spoke with Mario Cristobal, Justin Herbert, and Troy Dye. Uh, all three of those guys again will be at a podium for Oregon's media day on Friday, but then every other player, to our understanding, will be available should you request them uh, to speak to. And so we've put in our requests. We've, we've gotten some freshmen. We've gotten some seniors. We've got guys in between. Uh, and, and Oregon starts football practice Friday as well. So uh, lots of stuff is going to be going on with Oregon football. Football is going to go all of a sudden from a dead stop to a full sprint. Absolutely, and we should mention we requested basically every member of the team, I think, so it should get everybody. <laughs> so just be prepared to be fully represented by uh, by Duck Territory. We'll have everybody. That's not exactly true, but it felt like it. It felt like we were requesting the entire 2D when we were putting in our request yesterday. Yeah, it was. It, it got pretty long. Uh, we cut a couple people off for, uh, to, to make it a little bit more manageable for the media services crew over at uh, the University of Oregon, but, yeah, we requested everybody. Uh <laughs> Um, it's going to be good. There's going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to get to. Um, let's go into buying or selling though. First, we did this last podcast, uh, talking about Oregon football. Um, but now Oregon has come out. They've been voted as the PAC 12 North favorite and they are predicted to finish, um, second, I guess you could say, uh, in, in the poll in the, in the season, because, uh, the Pac-12 media, which was released last week, voted the Ducks as the Pac-12 North favorite, and then uh, they were picked. Uh, Utah was picked to win the league uh, outright. Uh, I think Oregon had 11 picks to win the conference. I had voted them uh, for the conference championship. Um, Washington was just behind the Husk, uh, just behind the Ducks uh, with nine picks. Utah received 12. So uh, very, very jumbled at the top, but that's not the question here. Are you buying or selling that Oregon is going to win the Pac-12 North as it was predicted uh, by the Pac-12 media? I'm buying. And I think that I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to do it despite losing. And if we've been doing a, a, a series of stories where we predict the uh, outcomes of games, I guess we're jumping ahead slightly because we haven't finally uh, officially put our Oregon State previews out there, but I think we can kind of assume the outcome of those games. I have Oregon losing two games in Pac-12 play, but I think that's going to be enough 
to win the Pac-12 North this year. I think it's going to be a league that beats each other up pretty good. I think Washington is also going to lose three games this year. I think they're going to be taking a step back. I do think Washington wins the head-to-head, but I think Oregon does enough to win the Pac-12 North this year. I think they're the most talented team in the North. Uh, looking at the rosters, there's just a lot of holes in other teams. I think Oregon, if they get the receiver position figured out, and that's probably the big question mark for me, I think they're by far the best team in the division. Um, and the only thing holding it back is just that Washington has a much more favorable schedule. But I, ultimately, I think talent overrides it. And I think Oregon opens the season with a big win over Auburn that kind of sets the tone and then is able to, uh, again, run through conference play largely unscathed, lose two games on the road, and win the Pac-12 North, setting up a game with, I think it's going to be Utah in the Pac-12 championship game, a game I think Oregon will win as well. Yeah, I, I'm also buying. I voted uh, for both the, the youth to win the Pac-12 South. I also voted for the Ducks to win the Pac-12 North. And I, I was one of the 11 voters that put Oregon uh, in in first place at the end of the season as Pac-12 champion. So obviously I'm buying this. I think um, Oregon is basically better or what they were last season at every position. Um, I, I, I think you look at who they were. They were 9-4 and four last year. All they've got to do is turn a couple of those really bad road performances in the first half, Washington State and Arizona. Uh, you'd take those two just really bad first halves and turn them you know, into games where they play well from start to finish. And I think they win a couple more games, and all of a sudden now instead of being 9-4, and four, uh, there's something like 11-2, and two, uh, maybe a 10-3 and three if they lose a, you know, if they lose a bowl game or whatnot. But I, I think Oregon is going to be in position. Uh, I think they've got the best player in the league and, and Justin Herbert. I think they have the best offensive line in the league. I think they have uh, one of the best linebackers in the league. I think you could argue Troy Dye is the best. I think you could argue Troy Dye is probably the third or fourth best because this league is loaded at linebackers uh, from a couple of different players, Evan Weaver at Cal. Um, you've also got Colin Schooler uh, at, at Arizona and, and a couple other guys that I'm going to get killed by their fans if I don't mention them. But uh, this is Mer- Merlin, Rob- Merlin Robertson, Robertson at Arizona State. State. Yeah. Yeah. So he was the freshman of the year on defense last year. So I, I think they've got, you know, like I said, Herbert's the best player in the conference. They've got the best offensive line. They've got one of the best linebackers in the conference. They've got an experienced secondary. Uh, they've got one of the best interior defensive linemen in Jordan Scott. I just think the talent is there. The only question I have is can they fix their road woes? Because all their tough games this season are going to fall on the road. And I think with the veteran leadership and I think with the talent that they have, uh, they'll be able to, to get those wins and, that are needed to win the league. I have them losing one game, and it's ironically a game I think very few people are expecting it to be, and it's it's a loss at Arizona State just before the end of the season. Um, so I have them going 11-1 and in regular season play. Now, why would they not win the league, Eric, in your opinion? I, I think two things. I think if if the wide receiver position isn't significantly better than it was last year, and I guess we should the caveat being the guys that are replacing Dylan Mitchell need to at least kind of replicate that, if not take a step forward. It can't be just one combined. guy again. Combined, yeah, right? it needs to be combined production that's improved. And and it, it, I don't think it can be sustainable with another guy stepping into the Dylan Mitchell role and catching, you know, basically being the only reliable target in big games. Cause I really think that was a factor down the stretch in some games. I look back at that Stanford game where they just needed a couple first downs. They just needed, uh, you know, to, to get in the end zone in overtime. It was basically, he was locked into Mitchell and Stanford played some very aggressive coverage. I, I think probably could have been pass interference, but he was basically locked in there just cause he didn't seem to have a lot of other players he was comfortable with. They need to find more options for him. Um, and I think they will. I think the talent's there. You, we've heard some encouraging stuff, but that be, that's probably the big question mark in terms of the team. And then the other one is the road. Just the schedule it doesn't set up uh, quite as favorably as other teams because, like we said, they play basically the four best teams in the conference that they play all season are all on the road. And a couple of those are going to be uh, really, really tough environments. I know the game in Seattle is going to be tough. Uh, you mentioned that... For whatever reason, Tempe's a really hard place to play for, for Oregon and other teams, it seems like, historically. I did I have Oregon winning that game, but I could see that being difficult. USC has a lot of talent. Stanford has, you know, kind of owned this little rivalry over here a couple, couple of years, and, and, and they always play Oregon really tough down 
in Palo Alto. So I think those are all tough games. And if, if Oregon slips up, I think they can lose twice, like I have them losing and still win the conference, because I think Washington's going to lose three times. I just think Washington's going to take a step back. But if they lose three games, if they somehow lose four games, obviously it's impossible. So they at least need to improve on the road, because it kind of comes down to, I think, I feel pretty good about them winning their home games. You look at the home games, there, aren't, there isn't a game that I look at and go like, man, that's going to be really, really tough. Cal's prop, California's probably the hardest home game they play, and I think that's a team they should beat pretty easily, but it's just can they win those road games. Yeah, they, they have Nevada and Montana for our non-conference opponents at home, and then Cal, Colorado, Washington State, Arizona, Oregon State. I, I would Washington, say, Washington State's harder, yeah. I should have said, yeah. Okay. I, I would say Washington State's harder than, than California for Oregon, uh, especially because that's coming off of a game against the Huskies for Oregon. Uh, and that, that's going to be difficult. You know. Back to back years, we should mention that they, that they played Washington and then Washington State the next week. And, and yep. last year that did not play out very well for them. Yes. Yes. Um, I think the league, I mean, for Oregon not to win, I think the obvious one is they, they don't figure out their road issues and right. they don't solve those because that's, I think that's the obvious one. Um, I think another reason why they won't win the league is they become one dimensional. And what I mean by that is, there's there's no threat in, of the passing game. You know, Justin Herbert's kind of he, he he has all the tools. He he has everything you want in a quarterback, but he doesn't have the you know, he, he can't throw and catch the football. And <laughs> uh as crazy as that sounds. So he I, could, I think it be that would be a heck of a play if he could. I mean, I guess Marcus Mariota did it in a playoff game, but you can't do that every play. Um and so I I think what's going to happen here is if they don't win the league, it's because the offense becomes one-dimensional and can't rely consistently on guys at the receiver position or at tight end or, or running backs out of the flat. They just can't generate a, a, a legit elite passing game that we would expect that a team would have with a caliber of a quarterback that Justin Herbert has. Um, and then that puts so much stress on the defense that the defense just eventually will break because they can't, you know, they can't win every single game for you. Um, it's not going to be sustainable for your defense to, you know, to win every single week, something like 18 to, to 12 or something of that nature, 18 to 14, 18 to 17, 21 to, to 17. And, and you know, those games in the, in the Pac-12, there's so many offenses that are so good. There's so many different types of offenses that are so good that you can't, re- you can't sit here and say our defense, no matter how good it is, is going to be able to stop every single team. Because it's just not going to happen. And so I, I think the schedule will play the biggest factor. And then after that, the offense becomes too one-dimensional and, and the defense can't can't pick up the load for the entire season. I, I have another one that I just kind of dawned on me. I think another one is just special teams, especially with the, the kicking game. If Oregon doesn't have a reliable place kicker, because you know how games on the road go that are competitive. You might need to be, it might be determined on a last second kick. It might be determined, right. you know, points are at a premium. You can't leave points on the board. And if Oregon again has inconsistencies or concerns at kicker, you know, last year they didn't attempt to kick past 40 yards after I think the fifth game of the season just because they knew they really couldn't make that distance. You can't be handcuffed like that, especially with a game on the line. You want to send a kicker out there that you're confident with. So you, either, whether it's Adam Stack or the freshman Camden Lewis, I think one of those guys needs to step up and become kind of a reliable force that Aiden Schneider was for such a long time at Oregon because, you know, not to, not to bring up nightmares from the past, but Oregon's had some rough spots with kickers on teams that were really good. <laughs> you I, just I, did bring up nightmares from the past. I just brought up some nightmares. I didn't want to, I didn't want to like say, you know, the USC game with Alejandro Maldonado in 2012, I think it was, or, you know, bring up any of those specifics or anything, but. They've had history with kickers not being very consistent in big moments, and, and I think that could be another thing that bites them because I do think I do think Oregon's the best team, but I think they're going to be in some tight games, and if, if they can't win, if they can't hit some clutch field goals, I think that could be another thing to keep an eye on because that was a real weakness in my opinion last year, and the same could sort of be said about the, the punting game, which was not really strong, but in particular, I think place kicking is, is, is a big question mark still. Let's look at this team here for a second, and let's look at two returners who will have a breakout year. Uh, you will give two, I will give two, um, and let's set the parameters here. So what defines a breakout year? I think um, someone that was not a starter last year, So this, and this is going to count as someone like uh, – let's, let's, I'm trying to think of a, like a – 
Isaac Slade, you know, he wasn't a full-time starter. Right. Uh, Austin Folio wasn't a full-time starter mm-hmm. on the defensive side of the football. Um, Jalen Red, Brian Addison, you know, those types of guys. Brian Addison hardly even played. He played four games for the Ducks last year. Um, you know, so you, you can't pick like a, I think, a, um, like a Dallas Warmack or a Brady Ayalo, a guy that's, you know, we, Ayalo has like 25 starts under his belt. It's, cra- it's crazy. Yeah. As, as a senior and he doesn't, he's not really a starter. Um, so I'll, I'll give my first one and I mm-hmm. think it's going to be Brian Addison. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the receiver position, there's this is going to be an insanely highly competitive fall camp at receiver because you've got a batch of returners that are veterans and senior Brendan Schooler, junior uh, Johnny Johnson, junior Jalen Red. You've also got um, Jawan Johnson, who's grad transferred in as a senior. Those four and, and Johnson, yeah, and then, then you got a, a group of young guys that were redshirt freshmen in Isaiah Crocker, JJ Tucker, and Brian Addison that have now had a year in the system. They've kind of figured things out. You know, they came on strong at the end of the year, uh, last season. They had good springs. Now it's their opportunity to, to really shine. And then you've got a batch of, of freshman newcomers and, and Micah Pittman, Josh Delgado, Lance Wilhoyt, uh, and J.R. Waters and I think each batch of, of players has this mentality of going into fall camp saying, I could start. I could, I could win a starting spot or I, I could have a big year. I could have, you know, I could catch 50 balls if, if I have a good fall camp. And so I think this camp is going to be highly contested. And I just go back to the last few weeks of the season and the bowl week prep, the week of the bowl game, the spring game. Uh, not the spring game, but the, the week, early weeks of spring football before he got hurt. And yeah. everything Mario Cristobal said about Brian Addison was he's going to be a dude. He's going to be a guy that's going to have a huge impact. He's, he's almost there to play. I mean, they debated playing him in the Red Box Bowl because they wanted to win. And it was like, do we, do we burn a redshirt year for that because he might not be here in, in four years or, or whatnot? I mean, they didn't say that in that way, but, right. you know, but that's, they were considering playing. And so my, my first pick is at receiver. I think we've made a big deal about, you know, Delgado and Pittman and Juwan Johnson and Will Hoyt and, um, Waters as newcomers at freshmen that are going to make big plays. Um, but I think it's going to be a redshirt freshman that has a really good year for Oregon. And then I'm picking Brian Addison. I, I think the narrative with Addison would be so different if he hadn't gotten hurt in spring yeah. camp. Because I think he would have gone on to have a camp where it was like every couple of days people were saying, this guy's really good. Because that was the way it was the first week. And then he had a hand injury or a finger injury, I forget which, and, and didn't really do much for the rest of spring. But if he had if he had continued that and then had a really good spring game, I think people would be talking about him as maybe one of the favorites to lead the team in receptions and yards and touchdowns and stuff like that. But because he was hurt and because he didn't play much last year, uh, I think there's some kind of uncertainty about what he can be. I agree. I think it's a great pick. Uh, my pick's going to be somebody that I've actually been touting as a possible breakout player for like three years now, uh, and, that's <laughs> I, and that's tied in Cam McCormick. It's actually true because I do a breakout offensive player story each year since I joined the site, and I looked back. I picked him every single season. So it's about time he breaks out. And I, my, my, I think the third time's the charm for Cam McCormick. Last year it looked like he was going to, and as we know, he – I think beat out Jacob Reland in fall camp. He was the one who started yep. the opening game. He looked like he was going to be the team's, you know, at least the team's 1A at tight end right. over Breland and then broke his leg in the first half of that game on one of like the first three drives of the season. So, uh, he's fully back healthy. He looked really good for the, you know, what we saw him in the spring. I think he's going to come in and I think he's going to open some eyes because I think nationally and, and probably some people, who don't follow the program quite as closely are expecting Jacob Breland to just be the dude and it's just kind of Breland and then a bunch of other guys. I think McCormick is going to push to either start. And if he starts, obviously he's going to have a big season. If he doesn't start, I still think he's going to be a pretty big part of what they're doing because he is a big physical guy who moves well, who catches the football, who can be uh, an asset in both the passing game but also as a blocker. Um, I just think there's upside there. And he's he's kind of that weird guy who – Everybody knows is pretty good, but who hasn't really shown it on the field that just because he was injured so much, because he, you know he, I think he was coming off of injury his first season as well. So there's, I just think when we see him fully healthy this year, and let's just, I'm knocking on wood right now that he stays fully healthy this year because I think he deserves it, um, and I think that'll give him an opportunity to have a, a really great, I think it's his junior season, so it's almost one of those better late than never kind of things. But I still see 
a, a substantial amount of upside from him. And I think he is a guy who offensively could really open some eyes because I think a lot of people are just focused on Breland. Yeah, Breland has a lot of the attention, and it, it's a, that's a good pick as well. Um, my second one, I'm going to shift over to the defensive side of the football. He started six games for the Ducks last year, so um, he's kind of on that fringe, and maybe you can call me cheating a little bit, but I'm going to pick Austin Folio. I think as a freshman, he was he was very good uh, as a freshman, and part of that was because he was a low three-star. No one was really expecting him to, to make an impact immediately. And not only did he make an impact, he, he started a couple games for the Ducks on a, as a true freshman, and uh, it, it's very it's very rare for you know an interior lineman, offensively or defensively, that's a low low-rated guy to come in and and play right away and, and perform well. He, so he had, I think, his freshman year probably had more notoriety than his sophomore year. But I think his sophomore year, he had more of an impact that didn't show up on the stat sheet. Um, and I think he's going to get the recognition and he's going to have the, the, the stats to back it up as a junior because I think he's going to win one of the defensive line spots for Oregon. And I think – you know, Jordan Scott's kind of entrenched himself as the name on Oregon's defensive line uh, going into this season. But I think at the end of the year, um, a lot of people are picking Kayvon Thibodeau. And he, look, he he might have a huge year as a true freshman. He might win, you know, freshman and all, uh, defensive pl- uh, player of the year in the Pac-12. You know, that wouldn't surprise me. But I think a lot of his success is going to come from the def- the offensive lines that they face saying, we can't let, let Jordan Scott go one-on-one with somebody, and we can't let Austin Folio, uh, you know, ha- have one, one guy, one offensive lineman guarding. We gotta either leave, you know, two linemen on those two guys each, or we gotta have a running back and, and a lineman with one of them, and, or we gotta have a, a tight end and a line, you know, a, a lineman with one of them, or we gotta chip before we go out. Um, I think Austin Folio is gonna have a really big year as a junior, and he's gonna kinda position himself to be the guy on the defensive line as a senior, should Jordan Scott go pro a year early? I'll be really curious to see how that all shakes out up front on the defensive line. It just feels like there's so many guys that could be a factor, and, and certainly Falu is one of those guys. For me, I'm going with one here that feels a little under the radar, but just based upon the way spring played out, I think Verone McKinley at what looks to be the nickel position is going to play a lot, and I think that's going to be somebody that fans probably aren't very familiar with. He redshirt last year. I think he played in the I think he played in four games, the kind of the maximum to, to use his redshirt year. Um, I think he's going to be a, a big factor. I don't necessarily know if he's going to be somebody that you go like, oh, he's an all-conference caliber guy. Sure. But I think he's going to play enough, and he's going to make enough plays and be out there enough that people are going to be like, oh, he's a big part of the defense. Because it looks like, based upon what we saw in the spring, that they do play almost a full-time fifth defensive back. And, and McKinley was kind of the lead guy all spring. We should mention there's a bunch of newcomers that are in the secondary that could possibly move over and give that a shot, whether it's DJ James, Jamal Hill, Triquez Bridges, Michael Wright. Maybe they go a little bigger with some of those safeties and, and move them over there. Maybe they move some other players around and see if they can fit. But I just think McKinley, based upon how the spring went, feels like the odds-on favorite for that position. And my expectation is that in Avalos' defense, that's going to be a player that's on the field an awful lot, probably 75 80% of the plays. And I think he's going to have an opportunity to have a really good season just because Ugo Amadi played that position largely last yeah. year. And I think there's an opportunity for him to have a big season. Let's now shift gears towards um, a newcomer that's going to make an impact. So that could be a grad transfer. That could be a JUCO transfer. That could be a high school you know, signee. Um, I'll go first. And I think – I'm going to, I'm going to, I hope I'm not calling you out here because Uh-oh. I think, I think the obvious answers for this is Kayvon Thibodeau. And if you don't do Kayvon Thibodeau, you're probably going to do Micah Pittman. Um, I, so I'm not going to pick those two names because I think it's pretty safe to say that they're going to have impacts. So, um, I hope I just didn't take one of your guys off the board and you can say one of them if you want. But. I'm just going to say them both right now. Those are my picks. So, uh, yeah, okay. Matt. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go with somebody else, uh, that, that, that's not on, that's not one of those two players, just because I think it's, it's pretty obvious that those two guys showed up in spring ball, uh, they're, and they, they performed really well and they are on top of 
you know, the recruiting list. They're, they're guys that you look at this group and say, yeah, they're really talented and they're going to play right away. So I, I think, you know, I'm not going to name those two guys. On offense, on the side of the football, um, I, I'm going to do Jonah Tuanu because I think even though Oregon's offensive line is straight up loaded with experience, they've got a lot of guys coming back that – um, are freshmen or redshirt freshmen or sophomores that played some last season. They've got a, t- they've got what, six or seven seniors along the offensive line. I think Jonah is so good. He was the 63rd best player in the country. He was the ninth best offensive tackle in the country. Um, I just think he's going to force his way into the rotation. Is he going to play every down? No. Is he going to start? It would surprise me if he starts. Even if he gets one start, it would surprise me. But I think, you know, Mario Cristobal finally now has that depth where he doesn't have to play guys 500 snaps in a season um, or 400 snaps in a season. You know, he can give guys, a, you know, a little bit of a break, lesser of a low workload during um, the, the grinds of the regular season. I think, I think Jonah T is going to show up and he, he's going to be so good that he forces his way onto the football field as a true freshman, even though it's a position that's just completely loaded. I think I mentioned his name earlier, but I think Camden Lewis, uh, the true freshman place kicker, is somebody who will certainly see the field. And I, I expect, and you know, Adam Stack has been dealing with injuries. I think that's out there. Uh, he's, I think he's had yeah. a sports, sports hernia. He's working. I think Cristobal's been quoted on that. Um, I, those are tough injuries. My suspect, my, I guess I sort of suspect that it's going to be Lewis that wins the job, and because of that, he's going to have to make an impact, whether that's positive or <laughs> negative. Yep. You know, he's going to be out there. And again, place kicker, like we talked about earlier, that could be something that swings games. And his ability or inability to make kicks is going to have an impact. And again, I think he's going to win that job. I think he had some positive moments in the spring. I think he made both his field goals in the spring game. I think they're both under 35 yards. So it's not like he was, he showed off his leg very much. We didn't see a ton of the place kickers in general, uh, uh, out there just in, in practice. They didn't do a lot of live kicking. Uh, when we were watching, but I, I think, I suspect he's going to end up being the team's place kicker. And I think, again, for better or for worse, he is going to have some sort of impact on results of Oregon's games this year. Um, I've got one more. I don't know if you have one more. I, I'm oh, going to yeah. throw, I'm going to throw one more on there. Um, and I think it's going to be at linebacker. It's going to be a freshman. Um, and I'm not going to say Miss Funa. I think Gmon Eford is, Going to be a guy that's going to make some surprises. I, th- I think Funa will play as well. Um, I think Eford will find himself on a lot of special teams, a lot of, you know, passing down situations. I just, I just have this feeling that Gmon is going to be, um, a very talented guy. He showed up in spring ball. He's put on a ton of weight. He's gotten a lot bigger, faster, stronger, you name it. I think Eford's going to be a guy that's going to surprise some people at linebacker. I'll do, I guess, just one more. I'm going to make this pretty cumulative, but I think of the three, I'm picking three players here as a group, but of the three new new defensive linemen, Brandon Dorless, Christian Williams, and Keon Ware-Hudson, I think one or two of those guys is going to play a lot more than people expect because they all came in weighing above 292 pounds, which means they're all rocked up and basically ready to play. Dorless was, I think, listed at like 265, 270 when he signed. He's put on about close to 30 pounds based upon the updated rosters, and if you see photos of him, you can tell he has put on some weight. Um, we should mention Dorless is a high school teammate of Eford, so there's a little connection there. But I just think between those three guys, and again, I'm cheating picking three, but of course Matt picked like four guys earlier, so we're, I think we're evening <laughs> it out. Um, I, I, I think I think I think they're going to be some surprise with how much of an impact some of these true freshman defensive linemen have, just because I think the talents there, the body type and sizes there, and and frankly, Oregon still. Despite bringing back quite a few veteran guys, they still need some some guys to prove themselves in that kind of younger group because a lot of the guys they're relying upon are juniors and seniors this year and won't be around the program in 2020. So I think they'd love to have, whether it is Ware Hudson, Williams, or uh, Doralis, one of those guys step up and kind of cement themselves as, as a, a linchpin of that group going forward. All right, let's take a quick break, and then uh, we'll hear from our sponsors and we come back. We'll... We'll continue our discussion uh, of Oregon Football Media Day, uh, which starts later this week. Passion, drive, and patience. 
What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I am Matt Preem. Eric Scopel, as always, is joining me on the show. Uh, previewing your Oregon football media day, fall camp, going into the season, start of the season, whatever you want to call this. Um I think there's a lot of questions going in and a lot of intrigue, a lot of interest in this program. Uh, we've seen a lot of off-season hype, um, Eric. I think there's, from an individual standpoint, I mean, we've got almost the entire offensive line is, has made some kind of watch list. Justin Herbert's on almost every single watch list. He's a Heisman candidate. He's talked out as the number one draft pick in the draft for uh, the upcoming NFL draft. Uh, we've got Troy Dye, who's a, a, a fresh uh, a national All-American, preseason All-American that no one's talking about. It's because there's so many other things that they're that are being discussed about this team that picked to win the North. Um, my just overall vibe going into media day is just going to be what, how has this team accepted this praise, this hype, this attention? Because for everyone on this roster. They haven't experienced this before. No. Um, and, and that's really strange to say for Oregon football because typically, you know, from 2008 to 2015, um, those seasons, every year Oregon knew, hey, we're going to be, we're going to receive a vote to win the conference. We're going to get into the discussion. We're going to be a top 25 team from start to finish. And it really hasn't you know, been that way the last three or four years at Oregon, you know, since these guys have shown up. Now, the redshirt freshmen, they were part of uh, the redshirt seniors. They were redshirting um, as as true freshmen during that 2015 season when they went nine and four. Uh, but they were, and so they, maybe they were kind of in, in the mix, but you know, they weren't, they had that mentality of I'm not going to play and, and, and whatnot. But um, so I'm just going to be curious, just what's the overall vibe of this team? There's a lot of eyes on this team. There's a lot of people talking about this team. There's a lot of people throwing praise uh, you and me are, are in that group, uh, on this team. And how, how are they going to handle it? Are they going to, you know, talk it up and, oh man, yeah, everyone's picking us to win. Or are they even going to acknowledge it? Um, that's, I'm going to be curious to see how they just handle all this new praise that's been bestowed upon them. Yeah. And we should mention, I just pulled it up. Even in 2016, which was obviously a disaster of a season, they received one vote to win the Pac-12 North. And there was some expectations, expectations even that year. Which is weird because in retrospect, I was like, I think everybody thought they were going to be bad that year. But there was, I think, some kind of optimism that maybe they'll figure it out with Prukop and, and some of these guys returning. But you're right. There just hasn't been, you know, that kind of expectation really on this program for a handful of years now. And this is an opportunity where it's not only some expectations, like they received one or two votes to win the Pac-12 North. They're the favorites to do it. Yeah. And that changes things. And, I, you know, I think I asked Cristobal and Herbert just kind of internally how they'll handle it. I think there's a story on the site. But... 
it's going to be a new challenge for them. It's They are now going from being the hunters to kind of being the hunted, and that is going to be an interesting dynamic to see play out. I, I think that's going to be fascinating. Um, one thing for me is we've we talked about receiver quite a bit on this podcast. I don't think that surprises people who know this program, but I, one thing for me that's going to be interesting to kind of learn about and hear about is You've got this collection of veteran receivers in Brennan Schooler, Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, who played a lot last year and didn't have the best seasons. I think that's probably safe to say. And I think they, so most of those guys admitted to it in the spring. I'm curious to hear from them and from quarterbacks and teammates how those guys' off seasons went, knowing that there's a bunch of true freshmen and grad transfer in Jawan Johnson and these redshirt freshmen like Brian Addison that we mentioned that are all kind of Eyeing those jobs that they they occupied last year, those were kind of the the three you know those are three of the top four receivers from last year's team along with Dylan Mitchell, and I'm sure they're feeling kind of the the footsteps behind them. I'm curious to see how that's helped motivate them or change their off season or just in general what that dynamic looks like because it has to be a thing where these are guys that are entering their junior and senior seasons, and there's a bunch of freshmen and a grad transfer, new guys that are kind of now on campus that everybody's excited about that, frankly, you know, you go read the message boards, and I, I don't know who posted it, but somebody said something like, if Johnny Johnson and Brennan Schooler are going to be our starting receivers, we're going to be in trouble this year. I'm sure they've kind of heard those rumblings as well, and, and I don't know if those are fair or not, but I'm sure they're aware of it, and how has that impacted them? So I, I'll be very curious because, again, wide receiver to me is probably the biggest position question mark on the roster, and you've got – a group of veteran guys who are probably entering this season feeling like they have a ton to prove. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting dynamic because it's it's always interesting when you've got a group of guys that have been there a while, that put in a lot of work, you know, they've helped create a culture and from an external standpoint, you know, they're not viewed in a positive light and there's all these newcomers that just show up one day and everyone's just Oh, the receivers are going to be awesome because of these guys who've never, you know, they haven't done anything towards building yeah. the culture of this program, and, and that that can naturally just kind of you know create a rift between the older guys and the younger guys, and it'll be interesting to see you know how Oregon's culture kind of handles that, and you know, is that going to be an issue, or is is the team big enough to understand that hey, these younger guys can help us, or the younger guys knowing hey, you know. They don't maybe necessarily have the statistical um, success that you would think for a starter, but they've helped pave the way to get Oregon to where they are considered the Pac-12 North Championship. I need to let I need to show my respect to the veteran players and listen to when they give me you know tips and stuff because they know what they're doing. That's going to be an interesting dynamic, 100. percent um, My other my other question uh, that I'm that I'm going to decide with is. I, I'm really curious to just to see going into fall camp and when I'm sure we'll get a couple practices where we get to watch the entire practice and you know we'll get an opportunity to watch you know every day in practice um you know parts of the team defense and, and whatnot. But just I just think there's so much uncertainty or mm-hmm. mystique or mystery about Andy Avalos' defense and just what exactly it looks like. Yeah. I mean that that's what I want to I want to see. I mean I, I I'm still trying to figure out how does everyone exactly fit into this defense because you 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 pushed him last during spring ball about what's your defense look like and he got multiple front multiple front. Yeah. I mean I, I yep. remember um, James Capri, the Oregon the Oregonian Oregon Live reporter. He was you know he kind of pushed back on us like well if multiple fronts yeah but like what's your base defense like. What, what would you, you know, start practice with and what formation? It's like multiple. And I think we saw that during spring ball. Sometimes they'd have two defensive linemen. Sometimes they'd have five defensive linemen when they did their, their, their defensive team drills. And so start to finish a fall camp. Do we get any kind of clarity of what Andy Avalos' defense is going to look like, you know, from just a baseline standpoint? Or is it truly like he said, uh, and where it's, you know, one day it's this, one day it's that. I mean, it, I think there's going to be a lot of intrigue of just what Oregon's defense looks like under Andy Avalos. This is an example of of why it's so clear we work in proximity together because that was that was my <laughs> other question. So I'm going to share it. So we have three big questions, but two, two of them are shared, I guess. But I, I 
that's my big, that's been my big question all offseason that I've been trying to figure, kind of just trying to internally figure out from what we watched and looking back and watching the spring game and what they did. And it's just like, it looks like they're playing basically a 3-3-5. Is that really what we should expect to see in the fall? Or are they kind of playing mind games? Cause they do open the season against Auburn and Auburn also doesn't, they, I'm sure they don't want Auburn to know exactly what they're doing. Um, so I, I agree. I, that's a big one for me is how does it all fit together? And if, if, if it is a true 3-3-5 kind of defense, that means you're basically removing one linebacker position from last year. And that looks kind of, at least the way it did in the spring, was kind of that outside linebacker position that Lamar Winston was playing. And, and we, you know, we saw him play a little bit of the new stud linebacker position, but that has been, those were typically occupied by bigger body guys, like six foot five to two, six foot five, six, six, 250, 270 pound guys in, in, uh, Bryson Young and DJ Johnson, you know, much different body type for an Adrian Jackson or a Lamar Winston. I'm very curious to see what they do with those guys. And again, we mentioned them having a, a nickel corner out there. I think they refer to it as the spur. I'm very curious to see, is that really going to be an 80% of the time? Are they going to play a guy like that? Or is it going to be a 4-2-5? Or, or I, you know, who the heck knows what they're going to do? That becomes, I think, a huge question. And again, I don't know. I don't know how much of that we'll learn or if we're going to go through fall camp and every week they're going to show us a different defense. I could see it going one way or the other. So I agree. I think it's it's a huge question mark. And frankly, probably the thing I'm most excited to sort of uncover throughout fall camp and probably into the season, my guess is we're not going to have a real definitive understanding of what they're doing until after that Auburn game because I think they want to keep Auburn guessing to a certain extent too. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely some gamemanship uh, going on there. Um, one other thing that I'm curious to know about, Eric, and I want to get your opinions on this after I say it, but yeah. I, I'm going to ask a lot of these players, a hot topic right now from Pac-12 Media Day was that Larry Scott mentioned that the league is exploring the ideas of some 9 a.m. kickoff times. <laughs> and to me, that sounds absolutely awful from a fan perspective. And um, but I'm, I want to ask the players that, like, yeah. like, what, what are your thoughts? Like, what, what is it, what, when do you have to start prepping for a game during the day? And if you did have a 9 a.m. start time, when would you have to get up to start, you know, doing your foam rollers and getting yourself stretched out and eating the, the foods that you need to eat so that you're fueled up and ready to go for the game in time and, you know, all the things, getting some, treat, some medical treatment that you need to get before you you go and play, and you've got to watch. You have a routine where you have to watch film. And you know, how early does a guy have to get up to start practicing? And then another aspect that was presented to me that was, you know, what's worse? Okay, let's say you have a 9 a.m. game and you need to get up at, at 5 a.m. and at, for for this football game uh, or four o'clock. Is, is that worse than Okay, you just had a seven o'clock kickoff at Tucson and you have to fly back to Eugene. The game doesn't get over until about eleven o'clock. You don't get out of out of the stadium in Tucson until about twelve midnight. You don't get to the airport till about twelve forty five. You you depart at one AM. You don't get to Eugene until four o'clock, three thirty, and you don't get into your bed until four thirty. In the morning, is is that worse than than getting up so early? What would the players prefer? I mean, that that's a, I, I'm really curious to see what they say about that. I think that's a great question, and one thing that does pop into my head is that the team does traditionally practice mornings about 9 a.m. ish from you know at least the last couple of years. Maybe a 9 a.m. kickoff is more close to their normal schedule, and maybe it's closer to a routine because I know from my experience of working nine to five jobs. It always threw me off if on the weekend I went and did a trip and all of a sudden I get back and I didn't get to sleep at a good time and all of a sudden my, my sleep schedule is all screwed up. And these are college kids who obviously are, I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> doing their own thing and I'm sure they're they're not worrying about sleep quite as much. But a part of me does wonder if it, it kind of almost aligns more closely with what their week looks like anyway because they are typically getting up for practice around that time anyway, 5 or 6 a.m. probably, and rolling over to, you know, the HDC for practice. And maybe that's more similar. Um, 
And, and frankly, you know, you, you you play the game, you'd actually have the whole rest of the day off, and maybe they wouldn't mind that from a recovery perspective. I don't know. I, I think those are good questions. And, 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 you know, when you initially hear 9 a.m. kickoffs, I think fans respond negatively. I know I'm kind of going like, boy, that's going to be interesting. That's really different. But I also look at it and maybe selfishly go like, okay, I just have to wake up a little bit earlier, but then I have the rest of Saturday open to watch college football. I mean, I have basically the whole evening to, to watch college football, and and that could be kind of a, a nice change. So it is interesting. I also – I don't like the fact that the Pac-12 is looking at doing this because, to me, it says they're kind of on the margins already in terms of the national attention. I don't think that shocks anybody, but this feels kind of desperate to a certain extent, which is why my, init, my initial reaction is kind of like, I, it just feels kind of like you're – trying to find a way to catch the attention of the rest of the country and you're kind of sacrificing some stuff to do it. But I don't know. I, I agree from a, from a player perspective, I'd be very fascinated to see what they think. Cause I think they'd have probably varying opinions. I think, um, that this is in line where the conference is so worried about outside perspectives Instead of just focusing on, we need to be the best show in our market, in yep. our region, in our footprint. I mean, they're like, I go back to, okay, they, they play those, you know, in basketball, one Pac-12 team kicks off their season every year in China to grow the Pac-12 brand in China. And, you know, Stanford for football opened the year a couple of years ago in Australia, um, you know, and had a really long travel time to get there and, and whatnot. And, um, I think Arizona might be going to Hawaii so that they could play, um, a game during the zero week so that they can get on TV. And, you know, I just, I just keep going back and, and I'm thinking to, to all the things that the league is doing of, Oh, get eyeballs from the East Coast and get eyeballs from, you know, international, you know, spots and, you know, get eyeballs from here and get eyeballs from there. And, and they're forgetting about the core fan base, yep. the fan base in the Pac-12, because, I mean, you look at the markets that are in the Pac-12 footprint and you've got Los Angeles, you've got San Francisco, you've got Seattle, you've got Phoenix, you have Portland, you have Denver, you have, um, Salt Lake, Lake City. City. Uh, you've got seven markets right there that I'm, I'm pretty sure all seven of those markets are in, are in the top 25 in the country. And if you can make it where you're the number one show in town on Saturdays for the fall in those seven markets and it's not even close and you get the eyeballs, who cares what the AS Coast perspective says? Because so many people will be watching your games locally. There'll be a demand to get to the games. There'll be a demand to be part of the action that everything else will start gradually going towards it. That's why the SEC, in my opinion, is so good is because, yeah, they've got fans on the West Coast and they've got fans in the Midwest and they've got fans in the Northeast and, and, and outside of, you know, the continental, the United States and outside internationally. But they are so good and so well received and, and so much, so many people watch them because they are the show and in their footprint. Like everyone is dialed in, everyone is bought in. Every, you know, they they know their core fan base, their biggest core fan base. By and by and large, going away is from the South. It's from their their conference footprint, and the, I don't think you can say that for the league in the Pac-12. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the target demographic has to be those major markets, and I think. I think the hard thing for that right now is that Los Angeles is sort of apathetic towards college football and USC and UCLA aren't really doing anything to change that. And you have sort of similar stuff going on in the Bay Area. And that's, I think that's largely, uh, culturally based as well. I mean, I think people in the South are kind of indoctrinated into football at a young age and it just becomes like, oh, it's Saturday. We're going to go watch X football team. That's our team. Whereas in the, on the West Coast and in some of those big cities, you have people that are going off and doing different things and football just isn't the same priority. Right. But I, but I agree that, you know, what makes it a priority is when they're really, really good. And when they're really, really good teams that are competing at a high level, fans want to come watch. I mean, that's where you get the concept of fair weather and bandwagon fans. And USC has kind of always been a fan base kind of like that, where it's like they have that really, really intense, rabid, smaller group of fans, I'm not saying small like it's nothing, but like a, a group of fans that will that will go out to every game at the Coliseum, but it's about they need to be competing for something bigger to get the rest of the fan base to, to, to turn out and, and to show up. And right now, 
with USC not being very good, UCLA being worse or, or similar, and Cal and Stanford kind of always, Stanford in particular, it's just they're not always that exciting, and that fan base never really gets that, even when they are good. But it, it just feels like the, the lack of continuity and consistency, especially in California right now, really hurts. And I think Oregon getting back to where it was a, a handful of years ago could really help, especially on the West Coast, because Oregon kind of had become the Pac-12's representative. I don't know who the Pac-12's like top representative right now. I think it's probably Washington nationally. People look at them as kind of the big brand along with kind of Oregon and USC. But I don't know if they're kind of a splashy enough program. But you're right. I, I think there's a lot of things in terms of selling this to the local market that, that needs to change because there just doesn't seem like there's as much excitement out West right now for, for Oregon and, and for college football and as a whole. I love um, the fact that I, I think there's a point where in Southern California, USC, when when they were in their heyday, and all of a sudden now they have the NFL, and they didn't at the time, but that was a college town during Pete Carroll's run. Um, UCLA even had some of the spillover because of the fan base. And then um, I, I, I think the conference can, can, can get back to what you were talking about because you are right. There is you know <coughs> apathy in, in L.A. right now from for college football because – USC has been down, but I go back to that run with Pete Carroll and, you know, SC was just the talk of the town. And then during that same time, UCLA was making runs to the final four almost every year. And yeah. you know, UCLA was, a, 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 from a basketball perspective, was a powerhouse. And I just think, you know, the league needs those two schools to be good at those two sports. Um, and then they need to be, you know, solid in the other, you know, Reverse. So USA needs to be solid in basketball, and UCLA needs to be solid in in, in football. Um, and, and and that just kind of carries everything else into into form. Um, and so I, the league, I, I don't know. To, to wrap things up, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just think the league needs to focus on themselves more than what other people think of, uh, and and everything will will eventually figure itself out. Um, that's going to do it for us on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. Uh, go to DuckTerritory.com for more coverage from Oregon Football Media Day and also throughout August for Oregon's football camp uh, leading up to their season opening game in Big D in Dallas against Auburn at Cowboy Stadium. Eric and I will both be there for that as well. So for Eric and myself, Matt, thanks for listening to the show, and we'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.